Last weekend, we held the very first debatable InterVarsity. This episode was actually originally released during that tournament as a post-debate analysis to help participants understand what they could have done better during their particular rounds. But we are releasing this episode on Spotify anyway so that those who missed out on our tournament do not have to miss out on the important conversations we were having during the tournament. So this was the post-debate analysis for round 3 of Debatable InterVarsity 2021. The theme for this round was science. Because the past couple of years have been defined by the importance of creating and communicating scientific knowledge. So this motion asks us to question who gets to make scientific knowledge and why that might matter. The motion reads, This House would prioritize the funding of scientific research conducted by members of historically marginalized groups. We'd like to thank Dr. RJ Lim for contributing this motion and for helping us create this interview. We hope that you enjoy the episode. Thanks! Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina. And this is a post-debate analysis for our science and medicine round for Debatable InterVarsity. Our motion contributor for this team is Dr. RJ Lim. RJ is one of those people who need no introduction in the debate community. They've been coaching Southridge for years and debating for even longer than that. They're also a medical professional. They also helped me when, when I adjured Ateneo InterVarsity, there was someone with chickenpox so they help <laughs> contain it. So we're so happy to have you here, RJ. Hello. 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 Hi. Hello. So, Hello, everyone. Hello. So the, the motion is about prioritizing the funding of scientific research conducted by members of historically marginalized groups. The first question we ask all of our motion contributors is whether or not something inspired this motion. Is there like a particular event or a piece of matter that inspired this motion? Um, actually, for me, um, I just noticed I said that um, research motions aren't very common in tournaments. Um, actually, science and health motions outside of directly COVID-related motions haven't like really uh, gone up in popularity since the start of online debate. And, you know, as a doctor, and even before I became a doctor, I was always uh, very fascinated with debating science motions. And since my undergraduate course before I became a doctor was uh, BS Public Health, so research is quite near and dear to my heart. So I, I uh, when I was asked to contribute a motion, um, I dug deep into like my experiences and um, I realized that I would want to introduce or to give a research motion. Yeah. What do you think is the importance of science motions even outside of the COVID context? So you did mention that recently because of online debating, med motions have been coming up but they're mostly just COVID related. So what's the importance of looking outside of COVID and having medical motions in general? Yeah, so I think actually medical motions um, and specific like research motions in general are actually very rich like the, the subject matter might not always be accessible to everyone but I think um, talking about like the history of science which has evolved quite significantly over over time um, and the way that we have conducted uh, research who we prioritize what we research on and most importantly who benefits from the research that we conduct um, is a very interesting uh, field and a very interesting point of discussion that I don't think um, 
um, gets talked about a lot, like in in debate. So I think like uh, these types of motions are things that people should get more exposed to. Yeah. So the motion talks about prioritization of funding. So how would you define prioritization? Like what does prioritizing of funding even look like? Yeah. So in so just I guess a be a brief uh, background there. So currently, um, the way that research is funded, it's actually funded through mostly through grants. Public grants are given by the state. So what factors does the state actually look at when determining who gets that grant to begin with? How likely is it that your research can get done in the period of time that they need results? The cost of the research and the potential impact of, of the research. So how, how many people do they feel like it can affect? And if you're being sponsored by like a private corporation, obviously um, they would rather sponsor research that potentially benefits them. So that's how it normally works. The reason for this motion specifically being said to talk about prioritizing historically marginalized groups is because if you look at the history of um, the way that scientific research has been funded and who gets to lead this research, it has disproportionately prioritized um, white men, actually, um, to be the what we call primary investigator, meaning when you read the scientific paper, they are the first name that is credited. And usually they are the ones who present the research and are credited for being the, the like masterminds of the research. Yeah. So um, in this specific motion, the way I would set up funding is that aside from what I pre- what I already mentioned about how we you know decide um, how to fund re- or who gets funded, we would add an additional um, qualifier of you would have to be a member of a historically marginalized group as the primary investigator. So this could be women, gender minorities, or people of color. And you would get the priority over research that would be led by like, um, you know, cis white men basically, or etc. Et so what frame would you use on government to enter into the round? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, the most important way to frame this debate in GOV is to talk about the historically poor representation of um, these historically marginalized groups such as women, um, LGBT, and people of color in research. So there's a few ways um, that you can frame this. So the first one is to talk about how historically there have been ex- very few women and people, pers- uh, POCs that have been allowed into STEM fields. Obviously, it's gotten better in the recent past. But if you look at, for example, the amount, the number of like Nobel Prizes, for example, that have been awarded to non-white men, for example, only 25 women have been awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine, Chemistry, Physics, and Economics combined since the start of the Nobel Prize compared to the rest of them being men. So that's one. So that makes sense. Um, Historically, you know, many of these scientists are built predominantly by white men, so I get that. Except, I suppose, for exceptional cases like Marie Curie. I mean, that's why they're called exceptional cases, I suppose. Um, But I also think that there's barely any input from people of color or if there are, like, pieces of input, we just forget about them. Like, so much research from the Middle East, we just straight up forgot about them. So with that said, what would the second frame be for Gov? The second frame that I would also use is that um, because there were fewer opportunities for these, for people of color and women to access STEM fields, they were also not just less likely to be placed in positions where they could um, access funding and generate research ideas. But the agenda setting power of the people who were in that position meant that issues that surrounded, you know, women, uh, gender minorities, and people of color took a backseat to like more general issues that they felt 
felt were more important but really only affected um, um, the dominant majority uh, or dominant majority groups. So I think that's like a, a very important or those are the two really important frames with regards to like the historical analysis of why these marginalized groups have been left out. So given all those things, what would be really good arguments for government run? Especially if you're like on opening, how would you run this on government? Okay, so if I was the opening half, the way that I would do it is the first thing is to talk about this 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 as a way of correcting that historical injustice. So it's not really a form of reparations, but more of a way um, of being more inclusive and recognizing that these marginalized groups have not have not just been um, disprivileged in general, like by the state, for example, um, but more specifically by the field of science, right? So you would have to talk about the opportunities that are being denied people who are equally competent and who are able to conduct these types of uh, these types of research. And the reason that they aren't able to, for example, um, contribute as much to the field is because they are denied opportunities through this funding. Because if your research doesn't get funded, you won't really be able to do anything. It's very hard to self-fund a research um, because it's so expensive. It requires a lot of tools that you might not even get access to um, in order to analyze data. Um, I would also talk about how since the academe has a publish or perish mentality, for example, it, it becomes even more difficult to ascend um, in, in, uh, in terms of like getting um, high tenured positions in good universities because editor-in-chiefs of like um, major medical journals like the like JAMA or, or the New England Journal of Medicine it's because they get the priority for funding they are more likely to be able to publish and so they are less likely to perish compared to these historically marginalized groups so another example of the historical injustice of how scientific research was conducted in the past is the selective application of medical ethics one of the most notorious examples of this was the Tuskegee trials so in the Tuskegee trials a cohort of black men who were infected with syphilis were enrolled in a trial commissioned by the U.S. government that aimed to study the natural history of the disease. At the time of their enrollment, they were promised uh, treatment for their disease but were instead given placebo pills because in order for them to study the natural history of the disease, they would have to study um, these subjects from the time that they were infected until such time that they suffered long, late, long-term or late complications and even death. And at the end of this study, hundreds of participants died as a result of the complications of syphilis. So what this shows is that historically, science has treated members of minority groups as expendable test subjects while conferring greater protection to members of the dominant majority in terms of when they were um, subjected to um, clinical trials. It was more likely that white participants would be enrolled in trials that were deemed safer and members of the, these minority groups would be enrolled or participate in trials that were more dangerous and they would be informed perhaps that safety standards would be followed i.e. in this in the Tuskegee trials they were promised treatment but there would be no follow through with these promises and it would ultimately lead to loss of life. This is a historical injustice that should be addressed. So the second thing that I think um, an opening government team should discuss is so is to talk about like why this would be better for the field in general. And to answer the question, what type of output would would be produced now that these um, marginalized groups are the ones who are being prioritized? So we need to talk. You need to talk about um, the 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 gaps in research knowledge that we have and how those gaps have perpetuated inequality. So um, there have um, the most recent example I think of this is 
um, in the NFL, a lot of older, you know, NFL players, um, they suffer long-term um, brain damage because of the, the intensity of the sport and the fact that, you know, they always get hit. Um, but specifically, Black NFL players have had a more difficult time getting state benefits because their dementia scores are more difficult to assess because we don't have enough data on the, the baseline cognitive ability of like this, this population in general. So the, pro- the reason why we don't have that is because IQ tests, which were developed a very long time ago, like in the 1920s or the 1930s, were mostly developed by white people. So the tests themselves advantage white people who are able to understand the material being presented more than black people. So the assumption of that then was that black people were less intelligent than white people because when you gave them the same test, black people would score lower, not because they were dumber, but because the tests weren't designed for them, right? So this is one example of how if you had a person of color heading a research about, you know, the IQ or creating an IQ test that would be more applicable to a wider population, you wouldn't be seeing these problems that we're seeing now. So that's one. Number two is all um, another problem with the way that research was conducted is that these groups tend to get excluded as population, as test subjects. So for a long time, women weren't included in drug tests. So like when you would conduct a, a, a drug trial, it would be mostly men. And then you would assume that the results of the trial would also apply to women, which is which we know is obviously not true because they have you know different physiologies and all of that, right? So if you have women who would lead these programs, you can argue that it is more likely that they would create get a sample size that is more representative that essentially includes women and you would prevent the um, historically harmful drugs that were allowed into the market that were specifically harmful for women like the most famous example is thalidomide um, which was a drug that caused abnormalities in babies in pregnant women but since a lot of women were not included in the trial they never found out that the drug was already on the market so so historically marginalized groups as the agenda setters allows them to fill in these gaps that have historically perpetuated their own oppression and exclusion from scientific research. So that's a very meaty case already for opening government, right? I can't imagine, like, if I had to go against you, basically, I'd be scared if I was closing. So help me out. If I was (laughs) closing government, what would I have to run in order to at least have a shot of beating the case that you just presented? Mm, Okay, interesting. I think for the first one is to talk about, like, the importance of lived experiences in in science. So this is an argument that I think can be run on opening as well to preempt the possible argument that we'll probably talk about it. Because they could say something like, well, you know, you don't have to be Black to understand that Black people experience problems and all of that. But what I would say is that if a person of color is the one leading an investigation and the research is geared towards benefiting their uh, particular demographic, it is more likely that they are going to get the the level of support and participation, not just from the people funding them, but from the people that they are creating the research for. Because you can talk about how um, the historic you know, um, disparity between um, the Blacks and the Whites, for example, or men and women in multiple levels of society have sort of engendered this distrust between these, between um, the two compete, the dominant majority and the marginal, uh, the oppressed minority, which means that your ability to get people to participate in the research that you are conducting is influenced by whether or not you trust that the person conducting the research is doing something in your best interest or not. And this is the reason why a lot of research um, tends 
also have high attrition rates, which is subjects dropping out or refusing to participate because they do not trust the person conducting the research. For example, if you have a research um, on the effects on, for example, whether um, particular levels of testosterone um, advantage trans athletes, right? If it's a straight male who is conducting the research, right? You're probably not going to trust that that person is doing it in your best interest compared to if it's an actual trans man or trans woman conducting the research for the same reason, even if they basically give you the same, the, a similar um, rationale for conducting the research. And I think that's what's important. The reason why, for example, a lot of Black people in the time of COVID have distrusted the coronavirus vaccine is because they felt completely left out of the process. That even the people who were conducting the research weren't doing it for them. They were doing it for money or they were doing it to perpetuate, you know, whatever interest the dominant white people had. So just this representation in and of itself, even if the research itself doesn't produce anything good, um, will um, make it more likely that people will support and participate. And if they do that, then you will be able to get to a conclusion that will add to the pool of knowledge um, that you want to um, contribute to. So I think that's what um, I would, one of the things I would extend on um, in this debate. Yeah. So I guess you can move on to opposition. To this, I would ask, what would be a good reframing of this motion for opposition? Because I doubt that opposition, or like maybe it would happen, but I doubt that it'd be strategic for opposition to say, no, people of color were never denied opportunity. Yeah, I, so, I agree. Yeah. So what would be a better reframe for opposition for you? Okay, I feel like the most strategic reframe for op in this debate um, is to, instead of asking the question of um, whose research should be, should be funded, we should ask what research should be funded, right? Because if I were OO, I would say that the problem with OG's entire case is that it assumes that once you deputize, basically fund these like um, historically marginalized individuals, that the research that they would produce is going to automatically be beneficial for the marginalized groups that they represent. When in fact, like obviously these are individual researchers with their own interests and obviously not, for example, not all LGBT researchers would research into LGBT issues, right? Because you know, people's identities are not only defined by their race or their sexuality. Like, they have different interests. So it's a problem-solution mismatch, essentially. Like, in OP, I would say, if the problem if, if the problem is not enough research is being done for certain marginalized groups' interests, then you should prioritize funding the research, that, regardless of who is conducting it, that prioritizes the interests of these people. For example, I just found out earlier when I was researching about this motion that there's a significant body of knowledge about trans athletes and their hormonal levels that have been done by very competent, straight female, cis female and cis male researchers. They aren't part of that historically marginalized group, but a lot of their research has been used in legislation to forward, for example, more inclusivity for these for these groups of people. So it so you don't want to demonize like these non uh, the, the basically the cis slash white demographic because you are going to need their help. You are going to need their expertise in order to do this research. Why does their help matter though? Because this admittedly is a frame that talks about making alliances, but what is it about this research in particular that makes their help so useful? A lot of these research topics are very niche. So that doesn't so disproportionately prioritize like people of color in research or, or these marginalized groups. You're you're in further narrowing the number of people who could potentially 
um, contribute to this pool of knowledge and hope that one of the people's research that you fund or one of the researchers that you fund will eventually contribute to the pool of knowledge that you so des- desire for them to do. That's the way I would reframe it on up. So yeah. now I guess we can go to the arguments and I, I, I know uh, probably that the arguments are going to either attack a lot of the arguments the government already brought up or preempt things that will be extended on by government. So what were the key argumentations that you thought of for opposition? Because honestly, I'm a bit biased for this motion. I'm leaning more towards government and I'm having a hard time thinking of what to run if I were on office. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I also kind of lean gov in this motion. But what the first thing I think that op needs to do is to dispel, as I mentioned earlier, the assumption that researchers from marginalized minority groups will always do research that benefits their marginalized minority. So that's not true, right? And the problem with prioritizing funding their research is twofold. The first one is that it creates sort of an undue pressure that if I am one of the few uh, women of color or um, trans re- trans scientists out there, that I have to create research for these specific issues. So this argument is basically saying that they'll feel pressured to research, in other words, something like black issues because they feel like they were only chosen because they themselves were black. But what makes this kind of undue pressure so harmful, especially for these particular scientists? It basically forces them to change the, their career trajectory in order to fit into this mold. So essentially what you're doing is like you're applying something similar to the model minority um, pressure on these people by saying that, look, you're already being you're already being prioritized for funding. You might as well do something that helps your group, minority group, because no one else is going to do that. And if you don't do it, there's something like you're not, you know, you're not being a good scientist who is a member of the minorities. And I think that's very harmful because ultimately the, the research that is best or the the best research output aren't produced by people who feel pressured to create them, but are best produced by people who are actually interested and who have spent a significant amount of time studying these topics. And we're talking about scientific research that could influence policy, scientific research that could influence, you know, that, that that could influence like the way that we perceive um different things, right? So you want the best quality research. So on one level, you can probably argue that just the mere fact that you have more people who can research this already kind of increases the likelihood of getting that high-quality research that you need. What else could one talk about in this regard or with this line of thinking? You would, again, have to talk about a lot of counterexamples. So for example, it would be preferable to have like these different marginalized groups and members of the dominant majority collaborate to produce this output versus basically saying that if you're a member of the dominant majority, like you can't, like you will always be, you know, you'll always be the second option, even if you have the better idea, the better methodology and all of these things, because research is, has a lot of consequences and it's not something that you can leave to chances like this. So that's the first one. Um, I think the second thing, therefore, that, that stems from this is the whole concept of the glass cliff, which I know is more ap- applicable to feminist debates specifically, but I think it also applies to this debate. So what happens if the research that you produce as a, as a, you know, a, a researcher from a minority that was prioritized in funding doesn't really yield anything or fails to, for example, produce results in the desired timeline or the process of conducting the research becomes questionable, similar to the research about autism, for example, uh, like the link with vaccine and autism, which had a lot of problems even 
after it was published, then you become a target, right? So this is the the nuance to this specific debate is that oftentimes, like the failure of individual researchers of color impact to the way that people perceive their marginalized group. For every research that doesn't yield anything, there is somebody to blame, right? And it may not be their fault, but they'll get blamed anyway because people will say, hey, you were the one who was given the money. It could have gone to this other person, but you got it because you were a girl or you got it because you were black or you got it because you were LGBT. For those who don't know, the glass cliff is sort of the counterpart to a glass ceiling. Because once a woman or anyone from a minority group breaks a glass ceiling, they are now faced with a glass cliff, which means that in instances where they do fail, it's not just their failure, but ends up becoming sort of seen as the failure of the entire movement or the entire group or the entire minority. So once people break ceilings, they now have to face this sort of cliff. And I think that's that's not the kind of discourse that you want, right? Because the kind of interactions that you want to have, as you said, is collaborative. Like China and other countries in the world in this pandemic sharing everything they know about COVID to the rest of the world so everyone could do work on a vaccine together. And in fact, China was getting a lot of flack for not releasing all of its information as soon as possible, right? So it's all about collaboration. It sounds like science. It sounds like science is just an inherently collaborative endeavor yes like this sort of disaggregated way of doing it that pits groups against each other essentially is not the way that you want scientific research to be conducted and it can be very counterproductive so yeah that's that's what i thought of for for all like as a reframe slash argument i was actually wondering is there like a philosophy type of angle here about what the principle of science even is like should it be more political is it more meritocratic stuff like that yeah i actually think that um that's another um, very good angle that you can talk about. So remember that um, at the very start of, of our discussion, when we when you were asking how how is research funded, um, I talked about feasibility, cost, and potential impact. So all of these are objectively measurable things, and they are also free from any politics because they are objectively measurable. There is no partisan anything here, right? Because science is empirical. If you add something as subjective as like uh, them, like using people's race or people sexuality or people's um, biological sex as a reason for dictating funding, then that basically assumes that there is an objective link between these these other factors and good quality research, which there really isn't, right? And um, it ties into, like I guess, the conclusion of, my, of the previous discussion on the glass cliff is that, yeah, science needs to be empirical. It doesn't, it shouldn't serve a particular end aside from getting towards the truth. So if the policy that you do um, reduces the likelihood of you getting getting to the truth, then it isn't good for science and it's not something that you should do, right? So this is a principal discussion I think that you can sort of um, argue as like um, uh, um, like prior a priori, I guess, to a lot of the more um, I guess pragmatic things that I, I discussed earlier. It essentially frames the um, quote-unquote quote, quote impacts of, of the op case um, under this, this principle of science needs to get to the truth and if, you're, um, if your policy hinders that, 
that, then it's a bad policy per se. So yeah, I think it's a good idea. I guess liberal bias does sort of lay into defending this motion. But I think like, op does seem a bit more technical um, than gov because a lot of the matter does favor gov. But I think I think um, it's not, these arguments shouldn't really be, aren't really that inaccessible. I guess there, there might be a bit more effort to come up with them. But I, I'm confident that um, the, the debaters in the debate should be able to access um, these arguments. So yeah. Yeah, yeah so Thank I you. guess the last question that we want to ask you is for those people, um, especially novices, who might find it difficult to debate or argue on science motions because again, like what you said, some of the matter is not accessible. What advice would you give them? Oh, well, um, I think I think um, the way, well, obviously because I, I'm a doctor, I'm exposed to this this type of uh, uh, information quite a lot. But um, I actually matter loaded like for, for this when, when I was preparing this motion on YouTube. There's actually a lot of very good YouTube videos that um, talk about the, the disparity in, in, in scientific knowledge um, and the historical reasons why. Um, I think there were also a few good podcasts that had episodes that covered this. So the one about the IQ test, I think, was covered by Radio Lab in a very old series. Um, I, I can't remember it right now, but it was definitely covered in a series by Radio Lab. Um, so the, the material is out there. Um, I think it is a little bit more difficult to find than, I guess, the normal you know IR videos that people watch. Um, but it's it's there, and I think if you subscribe to, um, I guess, a lot of the major news, um, Western newspapers like Wall Street Journal, New York Times, they sometimes cover this um, this type of material. Um, and there are also um, other, like more, I guess, um, independent content creators like Philip DeFranco, for example. He was the one who covered the uh, NFL um, dementia issue, and that's actually where I got that matter. So it is there. Um, I think debaters just, I guess, they have to look for it a little bit more but it's it is there <laughs> yeah okay thank you so much RJ for agreeing to be part of our episode and for answering our questions as well as being a motion contributor for Debatable Ivy yeah. um, so we really appreciate your uh, you know you took the time out of your day and your busy schedule to be part of the experience of the novices for, on our tournament and I'm sure they're really appreciative of your contribution here as well Um, so that's it for this episode of Debatable we'll see everyone in the next one bye 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 Bye-bye.